Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, such a, a pleasure to see you here with us, worshiping with us, as we continue our, um, our Advent series that we've entitled Make Room. And um, today we get to celebrate. We get to celebrate great news, or good news, I got my, my adjectives wrong, good news of great joy together. By way of review, two weeks ago, we lit the Advent candle of hope. And Ryan led us through the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth and how they had the opportunity to make room for the unexpected as God brought them the unexpected hope of a child in their old age, a child named John who'd be the forerunner to the Messiah, to the Savior. Last week, we lit the candle of faith and focused in on the astounding faith of a young, poor teenage girl named Mary from a hick town named Nazareth. And while Mary shouldn't be the object of our faith, she should most definitely be the example for our faith. Mary's trusting heart posture towards God as he rewrote the script of her life is quite surprising, a very good example of faith to us. And in that, she taught us how to make room for the inconvenient. Well, today, as we light the joy candle, we're going to discover God's heart for all people, not just the ones who seemingly have it all together, not not just the church-going crowd, The angelic announcement that brought good news of great joy, got it right that time, that brought good news of great joy came to a very unexpected audience, a surprising one, an unlikely one, an often overlooked audience. It didn't come at a gathering in a synagogue or in the temple. Instead, it came in a field. Our text today will challenge us to make room for the overlooked to make room for the people that God makes room for. And if you happen to feel a little rough around the edges, if you struggle with shame, if you've ever wondered, could God really love somebody like me? If you're not really sure that you fit here at church, if you ever thought, boy, people might reject me if they really knew me. If you've ever had thoughts like that, my prayer is that you're gonna be profoundly encouraged by our text of scripture today. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter two or navigate to the copy of it on your mobile device. I've invited Deborah Park to come read our passage for us this morning. And if you're able, please stand with us as she reads, beginning with Luke chapter two and verse one. Luke 2, 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. 
And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. This is the word of God. Thank you, Deborah. You may be seated. Deborah's been with us for four and a half years as a college student, and this is most likely her last Sunday with us, and that's why I asked her to come and share scripture with us. So if you see her this morning, thank her for her participation here at Fellowship National. She's been a super volunteer in all kinds of different areas, and we're so grateful for you, Deborah. I would imagine that the passage that she just read for us is a familiar one to most of you, mainly because it's used over and over again in Christmas plays and in Christmas services and even in various ways in our Christmas songs, with the slight exception of the one about Grandma and the Reindeer. So if you've grown up around uh, Christian subculture at all, this is a very familiar story to you. Uh, But here's the thing about familiar passages like this. It's easy to take them for granted. It's easy to go, yeah, 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 I've heard that already. Um, I know what it says. I don't have anything more to learn here. Let's go on to the next chapter. And in doing that, it's easy to miss some of the subtle nuances of what goes on in these familiar passages. Even as a pastor, I'm guilty of this. So as I studied this passage again this week, I prayed that God would help me see it through fresh eyes, with an open heart, an open mind, opened his spirit, what his spirit would teach me. And as I did this, three observations stood out to me because that's how many observations usually stand out to preachers. Um, Three observations that I'd like to share with you this morning along with one challenge. So that's our, our outline. If you're taking notes, three observations, one challenge. Let's dive in with observation number one, and that's this. God delights in the humble, lowly, and overlooked. Say that out loud with me. God delights in the humble, lowly, and overlooked. Now, you might be asking, where on earth did you get this out of that text, Mark? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look with me again at verses 8 and 9. Right after the text tells us about the birth of Jesus, we read this. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Again, the common human response to seeing an angel. And of course, the angel then gives the common angelic response to seeing a human, which was, do not fear, fear not. Well, when parents have a baby, one of the things that they typically do is send out baby announcements. Well, God does the very same thing here. Except, it goes to a 
a very surprising audience. And, and he uses an angel instead of the post office. Uh, much quicker, more reliable. Um, but God's choice of who the announcement goes to is interesting. It's intriguing. It's something we need to pay attention to. You know, if I were God, I would have sent the angel five miles north to the city of Jerusalem, where all the religious leaders were, where the high-ranking government officials resided. That's, that's where I would have sent the announcement, but that's not what God does. That's not who God chooses. Who does he choose? You can say it out loud. Shepherds. Shepherds. The recipients were not those who occupied positions of power, positions of influence in the first century. They were not kings or governors or the pious, righteous Jewish religious leadership. No, the most important news ever to take place in creation was first given to shepherds. Why? I believe it's because of our first observation. Because God delights in the humble, in the lowly, in the overlooked. Now, you might have this conception of shepherds in your mind that um, is sort of positive. You know, they have a, a kind of an ideal down-to-earth job. They get to hang out outside. They care for animals in picturesque fields, enjoying the outdoors, living by the rhythms of nature. To us, shepherding may seem like a quaint and enviable vocation. But that's not how Luke's first readers would have viewed shepherds. In the first century, in Jewish culture, shepherds were quite low on the social rung, on the social ladder. So low that rabbinic teachings stated in the Talmud that shepherds were not acceptable witnesses in a court of law. Their character was considered questionable and hence their, their testimony unreliable. They were rough around the edges. They had a reputation of being untrustworthy. And since they lived nomadic lives, they were typically unable to fulfill all the ritual requirements of worship in the temple. I mean, they're sleeping out in a field with livestock. So they would be considered ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, not welcome to worship in the temple. All that to say, they were not highly thought of in their day. They might have been some of the last people you would expect this announcement, this, this birth announcement from God to go out to. But God delights in the humble, the lowly, and the overlooked. Proverbs 3.34 puts it this way. He, mock, he, God, mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. This little proverb is used twice, quoted twice in the New Testament. One by James, one by, one by Peter. James 4.6, 1 Peter 5.5, 5. it's quoted God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And when something is repeated like that in both Testaments, when New Testament writers go out of their way to take a little obscure proverb and highlight it and put, put um, accent lighting on it, you know, it, we should pay attention. Okay, this, this is repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God delights in the humble, lowly, and overlooked. And what's amazing to me is that God chooses these humble, lowly, overlooked shepherds to become the first missionaries of the gospel. Because after they go to, to Bethlehem, see the baby for themselves, look at what verse 17 says. And when they saw it, Jesus, lying there in a manger, they, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. They made this message known. Well, what did they make known? 
the one that the angel had announced to them. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. That's just another word for Messiah, the anointed one, the anointed one, the Lord, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And then what did the shepherds do? They go and tell others about it. They become the first human heralds of the message. God chose to use these lowly shepherds as the first evangelists, the first ones to share the gospel, the good news. That's amazing. So if you've ever thought, could God ever use a person like me to share the gospel? The answer is a resounding yes. He can use anyone. And he delights, particularly, in using the lowly, the humble, and the overlooked. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God delights in the humble, the lowly, and the overlooked. That's observation number one. Here's observation number two. Say this one out loud with me. God's joyous good news is for all people. God's joyous good news is for all people. Now, I don't know why the specific phrasing of the angelic announcement to the shepherds never, like, reached out and grabbed me um, by, the, the, um, by the shirt before, but it did while I studied it this week. Look with me again at verse 10, and let's pay attention to the phrasing here. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Do you catch that? All the people. You know, what we need to realize is that this message came into a context. It came into a cultural context where people believed that there were definitive boundaries around God's grace. And those definitive boundaries were drawn around law-abiding Jewish males. Only law-abiding Jewish males. And if you were outside of that, you were considered out of luck. If you're a shepherd, sorry, (laughs) you don't make the cut. You don't obey the Mosaic law. You're ceremonially unclean, you're out. If you're a Gentile, sorry, you're excluded. If you're a Gentile woman, that's a double whammy against you. What, What is Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, going to do when he grows up? If you pay close attention to his ministry, he flips this whole system, this whole perception up up on end. He's going to hang out with the social and religious outcasts. He's going in, in so much so that he's going to be called a friend of sinners. He's going to commend a Syrophoenician woman for her faith. He's going to extend grace to a Samaritan woman that he meets at a well and then turn around and commission her as a missionary to her people. Jesus is going to break down every man-made religious, ethnic, social, and gender barrier to God's grace. Isn't that great? That's why the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3, 28, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. 
God's joyous good news is for all people. And after the angel gives this announcement to the shepherds, a whole multitude of them appear. I would have loved to have been there. I would have loved to see that scene. I don't know what a multitude of angels looks like, but it's got to be astounding. It's got to be incredible. And I don't know what they sound like either when they all start praising God together, but it had to put like goosebumps on the the skin of all those shepherds um, standing out in the field as they heard it. Well, what do they all say in unison together? Look at verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now put yourself in the shoes of those shepherds in the fields. They just heard this. God is peace to those with whom God is pleased. What are the shepherds immediately going to start thinking? What are they going to start asking themselves? Well, this is great. But with whom is God pleased? Certainly it's not us. Fortunately, we have something those shepherds don't have. We have the fuller revelation of the New Testament collected for us. We now know with confidence that God is pleased with anyone, and I mean anyone, who puts their faith in him and his provision for salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews eleven six says this. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Who is God pleased with? Please notice that the verse doesn't say, without respected social standing, it's impossible to please God. It doesn't say without spiritual discipline, it's impossible to please God. It doesn't say without theological education, it's impossible to please God. It doesn't say without a squeaky clean moral record, it's impossible to please God. Now, what does it say? Without faith. I'm not saying that theological education and living according to God's standards is, is not important. But what am I saying is that's not what pleases him. Ultimately, we are saved by grace through faith. And it's not of ourselves. It's a gift from God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Who's God pleased with? Not just the Mosaic law-abiding Jewish males, but anyone, all, who put their faith in him and his provision for salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Through faith, our sin is exchanged for Christ's righteousness. Martin Luther, the great reformer, called this the great exchange. When we put our faith in Jesus for salvation, we now have peace with God because when he looks at us, he no longer sees our sin, but he sees the righteousness of the only one who's ever lived a perfect life, his son, Jesus Christ. When he looks at us, he sees us in Christ. That phrase is used over and over and over and over again through the New Testament. It's so significant. Pay attention. because This is what it means. It means that when God looks at us, he sees his son. He sees the perfection of Jesus. That's amazing grace. God delights in the humble, lowly, and overlooked. Observation number two, God's joyous good news is for all people, which leads us to observation number three. Say this one out loud with me as well. Mary and Joseph reflect God's gracious heart. Mary and Joseph reflect God's gracious heart. How many parents do we have in the the room this morning? Okay, quite a few of you. Quite a few of you. Okay, I want you to recall what it was like to have your first kid, okay? 
I remember for me and for Meredith, it was a pretty stressful experience. You know, we're pretty uptight. We'd never done this before. Um, I can also remember we were exhausted afterwards. Meredith a little bit more than me. Um, okay, Meredith a lot more than me. Um, and like us, you probably had your baby in a more convenient place than Mary and Joseph had theirs in a hospital. But hospitals typically have established visiting hours, don't they? Imagine that right after you're having your baby, you're tired, you're exhausted, you're excited, but, and you're also a little bit fearful, wondering how on earth to take care of this little life that you're now responsible for. And the nurse comes into your room and says, um, excuse me, but uh, there's a small crowd outside here to see you and your baby. And you say, oh, really? Well, we aren't expecting anyone. Who is it? Um, well, it, it, it seems to be like all the homeless from a five-mile radius. What are you going to tell the nurse? Um, aren't visiting hours over? <laughs> but what do Mary and Joseph do? Let's look again at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. I don't know why this detail never stuck out to me before, but it struck me as I studied this passage this week that Mary and Joseph must have welcomed these rough-around-the-edges, semi-nomadic visitors who had just been sleeping on the ground with their livestock out in the fields surrounding Bethlehem. They were probably dirty. They probably smelled like sheep. They, they probably didn't bother washing their hands on their way. And they want to see baby Jesus. It struck me that Mary and Joseph reflect God's heart for the overlooked here. They don't send the shepherds away. On the contrary, they seemingly extend rather radical hospitality to these impromptu visitors. Visitors who probably didn't usually, visitors who people probably didn't usually like to be associated with. People who are at the bottom rung of society's ladder. You know, if anybody around Bethlehem are watching all this go down, you know, they hear a baby crying, oh, I guess somebody had a baby. And then all these shepherds start coming into town. It's like, what are you guys doing here? And they go and they see the baby. It's like, what on earth are those parents thinking? Letting those people get near their baby. How weird. But Mary and Joseph reflect God's gracious heart. So many of our relationships, so many of my relationships are transactional. We usually open ourselves up only to those who can somehow offer us something in return. But aren't you glad that God doesn't operate that way? Because if he did, you and I would not be included in the family of God. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God chose to give us grace even when we didn't deserve it. God chose to include us, not because we could offer him anything in return, but simply to demonstrate his mercy and kindness. God chose to love us even when we were unlovely in our brokenness and in our sinfulness. God chose to move towards us with undeserved favor. And now that we've tasted of his undeserved love for us, he beckons us to do the same for others. You know, Mary and Joseph had tasted of God's undeserved favor towards them. 
two insignificant poor kids from a small hick town in Galilee. And the angel, and after the angels had appeared to them separately, I imagine, we, we're not told, but I imagine they, they gathered together and, and talked about it and go, wow, what was God thinking, choosing us? What a privilege. What undeserved favor that we would be the ones God would choose to bring Messiah into the world. Why did he choose us, Mary? I don't know, Joseph, but he did. And as they reflected on that undeserved favor, it must have opened their hearts to overflow with the same type of love, the same gracious posture towards others that would welcome these rough around the edges, dirty, smelly, not quite altogether shepherds. That would welcome these strangers to see their babies, to see baby Jesus with their own eyes and perhaps even hold them, him with their, in their own arms. God delights in the humble, lowly, and overlooked. God's joyous good news is for all people. And Mary and Joseph reflect God's gracious heart. Those are our three observations. And now I want to leave you with one challenge from our passage this morning. And I want to give it to you in the form of a question. Will you make room for those whom God makes room for? Will you make room for those whom God makes room for? You know, as a reflection of God's gracious love toward you, will you make room for the overlooked, for those who don't necessarily have anything to offer you in return? You know, one of the ways we do this every year is through our global Christmas offering. I want to encourage you to participate generously in that special offering once again this year like you've been so faithful to do in the past. Simply go to the giving tab on our website, select Global Christmas from the drop-down menu of the giving options. You have to go through the building fund and the benevolence fund, but it's there at the bottom, Global Christmas. Many of our ministry partners, specifically our partner in India, are ministering to the overlooked, and we can help. But I also want to encourage you to do more than just write a check this Advent season. We gave this challenge to you, this hospitality challenge to you last week to make room around your table sometime this season. What would it look like for you to invite someone to your dinner table who may not necessarily have something to offer you in return? Who could that be for you? A neighbor, a coworker? Perhaps even somebody holding a sign on a street corner. What would it look like to make room around the table for someone our society overlooks? Lastly, as our worship team makes their way back to stage, most of our local ministry partners also focus on caring for the overlooked. One of those is Salime. Salime? Sorry, butchered that one. Salome. <laughs> Salome Health. Um, they minister um, and provide health care to uh, immigrants, refugee families around our city. And I want to highlight a program that they have that uh, makes a profound difference in the lives of these refugees that, that come here to Nashville. It's called the Nashville Neighbors Program. 
And it equips volunteer teams to walk, walk alongside a newly arrived refugee family for six months, teaching them basic lessons on health care while also forming genuine relationships from our new neighbors from around the world. Now, this is a pretty significant commitment. I, I suggest don't, don't go it alone. Gather some friends to do it. Talk with your city groups about it. Hey, what if we signed up to do this together in the new year? And then reach out to Salome Health. You can go to the website, navigate on how to get involved there at the top and scroll down to their Nashville Neighbors program and learn more about the on-ramps to that. They give you training um, and it's something that you can uh, do to make a profound impact on the overlooked here in our own city of Nashville. I want to challenge you to do that um, in the new year. Pray with me as we close. Father, thank you for making room around the table for us. Lord, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is nothing that we had to offer you when you chose to extend your mercy and your grace. And so, Father, may we reflect your heart. May the grace that we've tasted from you be extended through us. May we be conduits of it to those who are looking for love in all the wrong places. Use us, Lord, to help others find that love in you. Father, it's our prayer that you would use us also to make room for the overlooked around us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.